When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Winning Plays Podcast on the CLNS Media Network, the leading online provider for the NBA's winningest franchise. Hey there, welcome into a new edition of the Winning Plays Podcast. My name is Brian Robb, joined by Ram Bernardoni, and today we start off the podcast with a bit of very unfortunate news. Celtics legend um, Tommy Heinsohn passing away earlier Tuesday at the age of 86. Um, Ryan, this is, I mean, there's so much you can say about Tommy um, and perhaps one of the, his career is unlike anyone else in the the entire NBA from player to coaching to broadcasting and doing it all with the same team um, over the past over 60 years here. Um, You know, a lot of our generation knows Tommy from strictly the old clips and obviously for his color commentary for the last 20 or 30 years, but um, his career beyond that is so much more. So what's, what just your initial thoughts on Tommy and, you know, what you kind of stands out to you most about, you know, what was an incredible hall of fame career? Yeah. I mean, undoubtedly a multiple, multiple hall of fame career and and maybe at some point in the future, a a three-time hall of fame career, uh, I think first, right, we, we both offer condolences to, to everybody with the, the Celtics organization. Uh, I know that there's been a lot going on with the franchise today with, uh, you know, uh, NBC has been running things. Mike Gorman, I think, uh, spoke really eloquently about Tommy and brought a lot of people to tears today. Um, but there's also a lot of just people around the NBA who have been saying things and specifically, you know, obviously around the Celtics and, and to, to Tommy's family, his, actual family is basketball family, the NBA family. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people thinking about him and, and I'm sure you've had more interactions with him than I have. I, I've been to a handful of games as, you know, within the media sphere, but uh, you've, you know, been around him a lot more. And, and I know uh, you're hoping to, to talk to Rich at some point in the next couple of days, um, who's traveled with the team as well and, and has a lot of those stories. Uh, so just, I would like to talk about sort of his career and, the the innovations that he brought as a, a player and a coach and a broadcaster and everything else. But, you know, sort of, I think maybe we start there with um, just putting that out there that, that obviously uh, everybody within the Celtics world is really thinking about him tonight. Um, yeah. And there's no question, like you said, the, you know, NBC sports Boston just did a great job today and you can tell just the impact Tommy had on everyone just with the array of people coming on that broadcast within, you know, couple hours of this news coming out, whether it was, you know, 
Brad Stevens, obviously Mike Gorman, Danny Ainge, Wick Grosbeck, Paul Pierce, Cedric Maxwell, like, you know, uh, Dave Cowens, uh, Bob Cousy, Chris Forsberg had a great conversation with as well. Um, again, just, and if you just go on Twitter and see any, you know, the number of former players, um, you know, obviously from years and years ago, but also guys who have only played a couple of years in Boston, just, you know, Tommy made that much of an impact on them when he was here, um, whether, you know, from just giving him them advice or obviously um, talking them up on the broadcast, like that's, it's kind of just epitomizes, you know, how, how great of a reach and how, how big of an impact he had. And like you said, you know, our thoughts obviously go to, you know, the, the his family, first and foremost, friends, the Celtics organization. Um, this is just, you know, these are shoes that honestly will never be filled, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, and I think one of the things that stands out with him, first and foremost, before you even get into the basketball, is that he seemed, from all accounts, to be a legitimately, like, wonderful person, right? Everybody, everybody universally speaks glowingly of him, and you never, you just don't hear anything from opponents, from other teams, from, you know, whatever it might be. There's just, you just never hear anybody say anything negative about him. Uh, he really was sort of beloved across the entire league and, and deservedly so from, I think, everything that, that everybody has, has really ever said about him. So, uh, it is a huge loss. Uh, but I would, you know, like I said, I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit before, you know, on another, another episode, maybe you get into some of the, the stories about personal interactions to just talk through his career a little bit because, like I said, it, it really is not just legendary for like the fact that he was around the NBA for nearly 70 years. It's that, pretty much from the start to the end, he was a like a real innovator that shaped the league that we know now, that shaped the way the game is played, uh, the way it's coached, the way it's broadcast, um, the way that teams, you know, that, that international teams play, like the U.S. team, there, there's he has an impact on that. A, a huge part of how NBA labor works, how, um, you know, the sort of CBA and, and the way that players are basically uh, partners in the league at, at this point is, is all things that tie back through Tommy's career. Uh, and so like, I, I think we should sort of just start at the beginning even and talk through some of that and, and how he impacted so many of those different things. Uh, so if you go all the way back, you know, he played at Holy Cross and, and was a multiple time all American in college. And I, the one thing that I do have is sort of a funny interaction with him is there was a, a, a game that I was at, I think, a couple years ago where I was talking to somebody in, in the Celtics front office, and they were sort of joking about how they had an NIT tournament bracket, right? They have Everybody has their NCAA tournament brackets, but <laughs> the front office, they do an NIT bracket, like, as a way to keep them all engaged in, in watching these games. And, and Tommy was sitting on the sideline and overheard it and sort of half-jokingly said, like, the NIT is the real tournament anyway. Because back <laughs> in his era, like, it, it was, that was right. It. That, the NIT predated the NCAA tournament, and, and we'll get to this. Like he, he was a broadcaster on the NCAA tournament itself when it was first really starting to become a big thing. But all the way back, like he he ties all the way back into the into the early days of basketball becoming a real major American sport as as an All American at Holy Cross, um, and then joins the Celtics as a territorial pick, which is obviously something that doesn't exist anymore. And in the fifty six fifty seven season wins his first all-star he's rookie of the year over bill russell and then in game seven of the finals has probably the greatest game of his career right where he goes 
for 37 and, and 23 in, in game seven. Hilariously, three of 11 on free throws. He's like an 80% career free throw shooter, but he, he maybe has some amount of yips in there. I don't, I don't know, playing in a game seven. And I believe fouls out maybe in, in a double overtime, you know, sort of classic early NBA game, game seven of the finals, double overtime. He has this enormous game, uh, wins the Celtics their first title, and right from the start just sort of stamps himself as an early star of the NBA. Uh, with uh, a sort of modern-looking game. He's uh, not, a, not entirely modern. You know, he, his career-long love of the, the hook shot comes from this era where he's taking 20-foot hook shots. As he's also is a good jump shooter and a good free-throw shooter in an era where that's not necessarily how it goes in, uh, for everybody. But he is, you can start to see the game that we know transitioning from the very early professional basketball, which is like just pure bully ball into that early sort of Celtic style with Kuzi and Russell and, and, and Heinz and, and Sam Jones and many others where there's a lot more sort of skill and pace involved. And there isn't a ton of video from that time, but like everything you see, it, it's where things are starting to look like the game that we know. And, and he's right there at that, that point with this like great first season introduction in, into the league and establishment of the Celtics as the, the powerhouse of the next generation. Um, and that's really the beginning of, of sort of where his time with the Celtics is, right? He, it's the first title that the Celtics win, and he'll be there for 17 more of them. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen anything from those sort of from those very, very early games. That I know that that sort of one game seven is what people remember from that, you know, from that first little era. Yeah. Uh, but there isn't a ton of video. It's, what there is is just sort of little clips that you can see here and there, and, and that's always what stood out to me from that time period. Yeah, and it's like you said, he, that was something – that he preached to the end. Oh, absolutely. Like, that's, yeah. and that's, which was and like, as a man, you know, as a mind that was kind of ahead of its time, like you said, um, the innovation we've seen, you know, no matter what, like just talking, you know, overhearing conversations he's having, it's like, or just on the broadcast, it's always, you know, got to run, got to like move, got to like up tempo it, like yep. get the ball out of the, when it falls out of the net, like push it. And that's, again, where the NBA is going more than ever. And like you said, that's where his kind of career began in the first place, which is... Yeah, and that, that innovative streak runs from, from the beginning. Like, you look at the, the, the teams that he was primarily running up against or that were early in the league, right? You have Mikan, you have George Mikan, you have Wilt. And then when he gets into coaching, you have, you have Kareem. So you have these big centers. And if you look at the Celtics, Bill Russell is obviously the greatest player of his generation, but he's a primarily defensive anchor. So this is a team with a defensive anchor center, a flashy, you know, offensive-minded point guard, and scoring wings in Heinsohn and Jones. Like, it's a, it really is sort of a, a modern incarnation of basketball that didn't exist again largely until he took over to coach, right? There was nobody else playing in that sort of style until the 70s when he does become a coach. And it's it just is so sort of stark to what we think about to early basketball and like, Oh, why were the Celtics successful? Was it just because of they had these couple of players or, or red hour back? Like part of it is things that we think about now is like, obviously that's the way that good teams want to play is something that we, the league moved away from for, you know, 20, 25 years in the time when it was becoming much more popular on television in the, the sort of late eighties, nineties, two thousands. But if you go all the way back a lot of the things that we see in the league now are like Tommy Heinsohn is there and part of it from, from the beginning. And he carries on from there where 
the one season he has in his career where they don't win a title is his second year. And then he goes on and wins seven more in his final seven seasons. So he wins eight titles in nine years with the Celtics and is an all-star for the last, uh, I think, five of those. So his first season and then five yeah, more. Six-time all-star, yeah. Six-time all-star, four-time all-NBA, right? Like, he is clearly one of the stars of, of this era. He's the top scorer, I think, three or four times on, on Celtics title teams. Um, he's just really a, a foundational piece of that that early um, you know, Celtics dynasty. And then careers are short at that time. Um, and the money isn't great. And there's a lot of different sort of things that, that come into it. And his career ends pretty early, right, in, in 1965. And, but it does run long enough where, again, you, you do get some video clips where you can see that. And so, again, like, I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on that period before we can talk about some of the things where he's starting to innovate in different ways after that. But, like, that is always – that's what stands out to me when you go back and look at it, even watching some of the clips today, just being like, oh, yeah, no, I get that. That's how teams are trying to build themselves even today, going back to that, that sort of period of when he was involved. Yeah. I mean, I think you just nailed on that front. I mean, it's – like you said, it's it's a shame that – there's not a ton of footage from that era, but you can, you know, the fingerprints are all over, you know, today's game in terms of what you can see and what, you know, he was doing on those teams with like the likes of Russell and so many other greats. Yeah. And then you go into this little sort of funny interregnum, right? Where, where he retires and goes into broadcasting for the first time. And he's a broadcaster for three years on um, people who are younger than, me basically don't even really know about this, but it's UHF television. It, so it's a Boston market local broadcasting in the late sixties where he's the color commentator. I think the story is even that like red specifically asked him to do this job. Um, I don't know the whole sort of details of it, but he's doing, he's a broadcaster for a couple of years and um, sort of obviously great of NBA media, but also famous curmudgeon Bob Ryan rips him rips into him in his early broadcasting career as being too much of a homer, not taking the game seriously enough. All of these things that will much later on in his career come back and where he will largely be proven right that this is how local basketball broadcast should should work. This is like what fans want to hear from their teams in their own local broadcasts. He is ultimately proven correct on this, but he goes through this little period where he's a broadcaster. It's why he's involved, officially involved in all 17 titles it's because they're winning titles in this time and he's it's after he's retired as a player before right. he's a coach he's a broadcaster on a, a local over the air UHF network you know i don't I don't even i don't know what number it is 56 or something right it's it's like the other dial on old old televisions um, but he really starts to innovate the idea of local broadcasts all the way back then and comes back to it much more in the 90s where modern you know fans of of our era are much more familiar with him, but he really does start all the way back there. And I don't know of any actual video of his broadcast from that point, but I do know that there are the stories of basically Bob Ryan didn't like him <laughs> in like 1967. <laughs> so it's, it's really an amazing little, little bit of a left turn that he comes back to later in his career where he goes and does that. Right. It's, I mean, and not to go, we'll obviously talk more about the timeline, but just him as a, like, like to say the Homerism that, was you know he'd be later in his career mocked nationally for um but to me when you know as someone who just grew up watching him and like he he just made it where 
you would all, you know, you could be watching the 2006, 2007 Celtics, but you'd still want to watch every game because you're going to learn something every game from them. Like there's, I don't think there's a better color commentator from that standpoint in the game, like, you know, over his career. Um, and it like, and you can, again, you saw the roots of it um, that early in the game. Yeah, there's really interesting stuff in the 80s when he's a commentator where he's doing, like, really good yeah, analysis. CBS. He's doing really serious broadcaster work, and, and which is how you know that this is not – that this is a game, right? This is a little bit of shtick for him. It's He's playing to a local audience in his early broadcasting days and his later ones when he's particularly with the Celtics. And people complain about it nationally – because it's not meant for a national audience. Right. <laughs> the actual audience of like league pass viewers who are seeing this, it's too bad that you don't like what it's for. It's not for you. And right. the, the way you can tell that he was right is that there's 29 other markets and probably 25 of them have people who are model their style on, on Tom Heinsohn because it's what their fan bases want. And when a Celtics fan watches one of their games, you're like, oh, these broadcasters are so bad. They're such homers. They're whatever. They're this and that. And you're like, yeah. It's not for you. Right. It, right? Work, well, it works. And it's yeah, like, absolutely. it's what, like, it's, it's what the audience wants. This is fun. This is a game. We don't need to take every single thing so seriously. But in 1969, he does come on as, a, as the head coach of the Celtics. And I think this is the first time where he really starts to put his imprint as the, the innovator and not just part of innovation. So as a player, obviously, it's Auerbach and, and others who are going to get the credit for the innovation. Um, as a coach, he wins coach of the year in 73 and then 74 and 76 is a title winning coach and, and eventually goes on to become a hall of fame coach um, many years later when, when he's inducted. But again, like that same imprint that we were talking about in, in the sixties of this sort of small ball style and run and gun and a, a thoroughly modern looking game. Like he's winning with again, Dave Cowens, a six foot nine center and John Havlicek, a, you know, what would now be called a heliocentric, shooting guard right he's he's a guy who's playing on ball and and the lead scorer and a whole number of other sort of role players around them that are um that sort of fit in with with this run and gun style that he wants to play and once again like this is really modern stuff that when they talk about like oh mike d'antoni and you know invent didn't invent but he popularized all the stuff with seven seconds or less or things like that like go back and watch there's no three-point line it looks weird but the 70s are very much the 70s and the 80s are more the precursors to the modern game than the 90s and the 2000s. Like the 70s, you have the ABA playing with a certain flair and with the three-point line coming in, the Celtics in the middle of the decade playing with small ball. The 80s, you start to see, right, you have a one team dominated the, the Lakers with a six-foot-nine point guard and the Celtics with a shooting wing. Like all of the things that are now really common in how you win games – are coming out of that era where he's coaching and he is just an absolute innovator in how the game will be played. And it, that disappears for a while, again, in like the 90s and 2000s. But people hated the game in the 90s and 2000s other than Michael Jordan, right? Like the game bogged down and got ugly and they had to change the rules to get back to that sort of pure style of how to play the game. And he's just right there. And he used to talk on, on the broadcast that I know about, you know, how they how they overcame Kareem and the way that they – single covered him with a six foot nine center and tried to shut everybody else down. And like, it's all these things that if you heard Greg Popovich talking about it today, you'd be like, Oh, that Greg Popovich, he's a genius. And it's Tom Heinsohn was a genius coach in the seventies. 
and absolutely rightly a Hall of Famer. And it's sort of the forgotten point of his career, right? You remember him as a player. He's obviously remembered as a broadcaster. You see him with the funny suits, the 70 suits on the sidelines. And it's a little bit of a, almost a joke, but it's like, no, this is a really seriously intelligent, innovative coach. And that should be remembered, I think, as part of his, you know, a major part of his legacy. Yeah, I mean, he five straight appearances in at least the conference finals as a coach. Obviously, two championships within there and seven straight winning seasons um, before uh, he was let go in 78. So it is, like I said, and then this is the the kind of respect that he would have from coaches around the league um, or any coach that came into Boston over the last 20 to 30 years kind of spoke to that in terms of like, um, yeah, like they're going to, you'd see anyone, whether it's a coach or a player, just picking Tommy's brain like between games, Danny Ainge, whoever it is, um, to think, you know, okay, what are what are you seeing out there? What do you think we need to do more of? What are you, you know, preaching? And he'd go back to these these tenants that, you know, served him so well, both as as a player and a coach. Yeah, and if he had wanted to leave the Celtics after he's fired as the Celtics coach at the sort of end of their 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 70s era, he could absolutely have gone and coached somewhere else. Oh, yeah he could have gone and coached any number of other franchises and most people would have, right? Like he's, this is his job. He's a professional head coach. And instead he decides that he's going to go back into broadcasting. I think maybe in part because he didn't want to leave the Celtics uh, organization. Um, and in the eighties, he joins the Celtics local broadcast again in 81. So again, he's a part of, he's associated to the Celtics for every single title. So he's there back for the first bird title, but he also goes through a period in the eighties he's a very serious broadcaster. He's not doing the local shtick. He's, if you watch the 86, you know, or the 84 and 86 Celtics titles in the 87 loss, it's Tom Heinsohn on the broadcast, right? Like he's the color commentator calling it down the middle. Like this is not a Homer broadcast. Yeah. And, and he was the number one broadcaster for CBS for a period of time there calling the playoffs, calling the finals. It just happened that the Celtics were in them. And if you didn't know everything else about him, you wouldn't think this was odd, right? It really is straight down the line analysis. And some of it is, it's like, that's sort of what I was getting at before, is pretty inventive ways to to explain the game to people as well. Like you see, again, the mind of somebody who's been a great player and a great coach, but is also a great communicator, able to really enrich these broadcasts. And it's not just in the NBA. He's also an NCAA broadcaster in that time. And again, straight down the line, he doesn't have a rooting interest here. Holy Cross is not a major power. Although I think Boston <laughs> College is actually doing quite well, but it's in the late 80s where sort of the Big East is is coming up. And again, like what we know is March Madness now is just sort of becoming a thing at that point. He's doing NCAA games and you don't see as many of those because I don't think he called any finals um, in, in that period. But like, again, he's the number one or number two broadcaster for college and the NBA on national broadcasts in the 80s while also doing Celtics local stuff. And that sort of is, is again, just sort of shows his versatility as, as a broadcaster and starting there. And then you get into the 90s and the Tommy Heinsohn that I think people of this era, most of the people who are listening to this podcast really know. And that's the Celtics are becoming not a good team, right? And, and exactly what you said, like how do you keep people engaged on these local broadcasts? And he very much goes back to those, those late sixties roots as a broadcaster of being a Homer, right. Of, of creating a fun broadcast for local fans to be watching, even though the team isn't very good. And so many of the sort of Tommy isms and the relationship between he, he and Mike Gorman builds over that next 
30 years from like 1990 up through today, you know, or, you know, modern, his modern broadcasting where he is this sort of bombastic Homer. But, but like I said, it's obvious that what he's doing is works. It's the Celtics fans love him. Um, broadcasts around the country pick up on that same thing. So even though he can do this straight down the line sort of thing, he understands fundamentally that the game is also about, is about fun and that we're there. You turn on your TV at 7.30 at night to disconnect and have fun and watch this game. And he was really, again, an innovator of like that thing that has carried on and now is common. It's, it's just the way broadcasts are done across the league. Um, and, and again, I mean, that's sort of what I know. And that's obviously, I, I was born in the early eighties. So I was born and I lived in Connecticut. So I didn't get like local Celtics broadcast even until, until much later, but he was sort of the precursor to how cable TV and how regional sports networks and all that treat their teams. Um, and, and pivoted in even into understanding sort of how social media works and how some of the things he was doing were, uh, the Tommy points and the Tommy awards and things like that were sort of viral things before there was viral maybe, or, or sort of things that caught on on early internet. And, and even if he wasn't there on the internet doing them in his seventies, like, like he just sort of always understood what the fans wanted as a broadcaster. And, and that's, it's, it's just something that will tie him to, to people like, like you and I, I think forever that he's the voice of became the voice of the team, even not as the, the broadcaster, right? Mike Gorman is Celtics voice, but sort of the voice of the Boston Celtics is Tommy's bombastic over the top, uh, everything that we loved about him. And that won't, I don't think ever be forgotten from, you know, within the Celtics organization with the fan base. No. And it's something where, like you said, like, why are you going to watch a random Wednesday night game in the early two thousands against the Sacramento Kings? Like, you're probably going to put it on because Tommy, it's like appointment listening, like to him and Gorman having that, like the comfort that that duo brought, um, you know, to, to watchers of the, of the Celtics during that era or, you know, in the, the report they built Gorman playing the classic straight man most of the time to Tommy um, setting him up, you know, playing into um, the catchphrases, the Tommy points, the, you know, the Isle of Walters, like the really turning, turning, you know, average role players into institutions for the Celtics just because he, you know, likes the guy's hustle. Um, and, and it's great. And it's, it's like, you know, every Celtics fan from that era will remember like Walter McCarty, for instance, because, you know, Tommy made, you know, made that happen on the broadcast. And so things like that, um, you know, throughout generation upon generation after all the, the playing and the coaching that he built up Hall of Fame careers for, it's, um, you know, it's few people can kind of touch so many generations. And that's what, you know, Heinsohn had really managed to do over the last 60 plus years. Yeah. I mean, ultimately the, the sort of tie that, that binds is that he loved the Celtics more than even we did. Right. He, he was maybe the number one fan of the Boston Celtics throughout his entire life. Uh, or at least throughout his, you know, from the time he came to Boston and that always shown, shown through. And I think just tied him to the fans. It's like, he's one of ours and we are part of, part of his world. Uh, and so a huge part of my fandom and it's a sad day, but I, you know, I, I thought it would be nice to sort of talk back through his career and how he's, he's much more than what, 
what we think of today or what we've been hearing for the last couple of years or when you hear again like oh national people who complain about his homers and like he it's a really amazing life uh and a really amazing career across across everything and one one worthy of of remembrance um and celebration and i'm, I'm sure we'll continue to see that and you know in the coming days and, and over this season where i'm certain there will be a lot of talk about him and a lot of remembrance uh, and, and deservedly so yeah, I think, I mean, Mike Gorman today, uh, talked about wanting to, for the Celtics to have, you know, number 15 on their jersey in some form for the season. Um, so I think some kind of remembrance like that, whether it's that on the court, um, you know, will surely happen, um, as a team, you know, gets ready to actually, you know, be playing games in what, like a month here, yeah, um, which is kind of, <laughs> which is kind of nuts, but yeah, there's no, we'll be, We'll definitely be talking a bit about this um, more in the upcoming um, days and weeks here. Um, we'll hear from Rich, who has um, who worked directly with Tommy for years um, later this week. Um, so definitely um, look forward to that. And again, um, we send all our thoughts and um, well wishes to everyone, you know, Tommy's family and everyone, you know, directly um, connected to him in which was a very um tough day but um we're gonna take a break here and then we're gonna come back and um talk a little bit about um the upcoming season um as the celtics suddenly have a draft in a week here and also uh we have to get done (laughs) lots to get done and also some you know some rules that they are going to help them uh get things done with with the salary cap luxury tax etc so we're gonna Take a break, and then we'll be back to break all that down. Before we get back to the show, our friends at Manscaped are here to remind you to take care of your biggest grooming and hygiene needs from head to toe. The all-in-one Manscaped performance package kit delivers the best tools to shave your body, including your family jewels. You heard that right, even your balls. I know I have enough trouble just, you know, shaving my face without nicking it up, much less other areas of my body. So for your most aggressive hair below the waist, you can use the new Lawnmower 3.0 trimmer, it's just a must. It's waterproof with advanced skin safe technology, traduce those nicks and cuts, and even has a light to help you with your close shave down there. And Manscaped even went one step further and released their Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer. After you shave things downstairs, don't forget to take care of the nose and the ear hair. The Weed Whacker also has propriety skin safe technology to help prevent those nicks and tugs up there as well. There's also the performance package also includes a crop preserver, which is a deodorant for your balls to protect against chafing. And you go, it has the best ingredients of all vegan, cruelty free, dye free, sulfate free, everything you'd want to know it's safe and comfortable. And last but not least, those smelly feet, an issue. Manscaped can help with their foot duster, foot deodorant made to fight odors of the dirtiest feet. On top of everything, they've even thrown in a shed travel bag so you can carry all these goods and some Manscaped anti-chafing boxer briefs to hold the entire package together. You can get 20% off all of this great stuff and free shipping if you use the code WINNING at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at Manscaped.com and use the code WINNING. Take the leap and join the Manscaped movement today. All right, and we're back here. Uh... So Ryan, we had the um, the amended CBA, I guess we're gonna call it for the yep. 20, 2020, 2021 season. Um, 
put into place uh, on Monday night. Uh, Board of Governors just approved it, so it's officially a go. Uh, a lot of things that came out of it we already knew in terms of the season starting December 22nd and the salary cap and the luxury tax for next season staying the same as last year at $109 million, $132 million. Um, but there were a bunch of smaller details that are going to matter a lot um, for the upcoming season that, and for future seasons. So let's start to go over them, you know, one by one a little bit here and figure out how this could change things for the Celtics. So the first one, I guess, to be honest, probably the most important one from the Celtics perspective, uh, player options. Normally. <laughs> Might be, yeah do after the NBA draft and before free agency starts. Uh, ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski reporting they could be coming due before the draft. Um, Ryan, this is huge for, and let's talk about why. Yeah. So normally option dates are, uh, you know, they can be negotiated into the contract. So the, you want, players want their option dates if it's player option to be as late as possible and they want team options to be as early as possible so that they know where they stand in relation to the market and they can make their own decisions and usually the best player player options are like right before the offseason ends so basically if they opt in nothing can happen until the new season begins anyway like you opt in and by the time you could actually process a transaction you're into the new season and a player can still be traded but like you don't know necessarily what their status is going to be when not only are you doing the draft and all the sort of trades and things that happen around the draft, but you're also sort of back channel negotiating, uh, tampering, if you would prefer to call it that with, with upcoming free agents. And you just don't necessarily know those things. Now we don't know them as outsiders. You're more of an insider than I am, but um, sometimes the teams have probably have a good idea of what's going to happen, but you don't ever really know until the decisions are made. And the big one here is is Gordon Hayward, and, and obviously Ennis Cantor is also important in this conversation, but to to a lesser extent. Uh, because if you know that Gordon Hayward is opted in or opted out and what he's planning on sort of doing proceeding forward, then it may very well change how you proceed at the draft. And just normally you wouldn't know that, right? Oh, okay, we need to prioritize a wing, or we don't need to prioritize a wing. Or it's uh, at the point of the draft, we're able to work a trade that involves Hayward that we can actually use the picks from this class and not have to just sort of go back and accept who somebody else picked, right? Like there's there's just so much more flexibility that happens where if he has to make his decision two days beforehand, it's a, you know, it's a pretty big deal. Similarly with Cantor, if Cantor opts out, then they don't have to potentially spend a pick to like move his salary if that's what they want (laughs) to do. If he opts in, then they would know that they would want to do that. Um, So yeah, having that option date before, and I don't think that's been confirmed yet. No, it maybe it has very recently. I don't, unless it has been confirmed, like as we've been on this, you know, recording this, I don't believe it's been confirmed yet, but that's what the rumor is that it's going to be a little bit before. And there isn't like really any other option for when it could be because free agency is supposed to open two days after the draft is done. And, and I think like there might be a little bit that what happened here is the NBP, the NBPA in delaying this, you know, 10 days, maybe from when they probably could have agreed to it didn't, they've created a situation where there's just not enough time to do it any other way. And I think that the options are probably going to come before the draft. And so that again, yeah, it's a really, it's sort of a boon for the Celtics just to have more information on draft night than you would have expected them to. So a little bit of a win there for, for the team and maybe a little bit of a, a hit for Hayward and, and Cantor. For sure. And you, I mean, the Celtics obviously would have, you know, preferred they 
would have told these the camps of both these guys that hey, like if you can give us a hint heading in a draft, that'd be great. Um, but like you said, there was neither where it'd be under any obligation to do that in a normal season. Um, that's not going to be the case here. And so we look at, you know, we talked about Kayward's situation inside out really uh, a couple weeks ago here, Ryan, and the, you know, the chatter, the buzz hasn't really died down um, since then, but there is stuff that has come out in this CBA that I think, again, only increases the odds of, him opting in. We know that it's a pretty shallow market um, of free agent teams that have even the, you know, significant cash to sign him. Um, the working a sign and trade angle would always, will always be there from the Celtics perspective, but that's a dangerous road too. Well, it's also becomes more difficult now with knowing that the luxury tax isn't going up at all. Right. Because there was even up until I think yesterday, like there was a real consideration that, you know, maybe they would change course on that and the luxury tax wouldn't stay completely flat. I think it's a mistake to have it as low as they do. Uh, they made some other changes that we can talk about and how they're going to sort of mitigate it. But like sign and trades become more difficult because the team receiving a player in sign and trade gets hard capped. The luxury tax line is lower. So the apron is lower, all that. Um, so it is the, the cap is low. There are fewer teams with cap space. We, uh, again, yeah, as you said, we talked about like, and, like there aren't that many options out there. Right. A little bit of breaking news here. Um, oh boy. Per ESPN, uh, one of those teams that could put together a decent amount of cap space is the Suns. And they're, uh, per Brian Windhorst, are in negotiations to trade for Chris Paul. Um, so if that happens, that would be one team, one more team off the list there. Not that you would think there'd be a team that would be interested in Hayward anyway, but um, that's one more potential suitor that you can probably cross off. Yeah, I think that was, and again, going back to when we talked, like that was one of the teams that was maybe more interesting on the sort of, they have, some amount of cap space, not enough to sign him. Maybe it gets involved in a sign-in trade. It'll be interesting to see how they're going to structure this with the salaries that they have on the books if they are, you know, seriously going after after Chris Paul. But like, yeah, that was certainly a team that not only you could see ways of him getting there that wouldn't have been necessarily terrible for the Celtics because, like I said, I don't know if they had enough cap space to sign him outright. But um, they were one of the more interesting teams. Like, as hey, this is an up-and-coming team that showed something in the bubble and have players that he would fit with and. Uh, so there's a lot. So yeah, if, if they're coming off the, the table, then yet another thing pushing, um, <laughs> pushing them back. I and mean, we can talk about the escrow stuff that I, I talked about on those, those prior calls, if you want as well, as to like why those sort of the way that they're structuring payments might also lead him to just thinking it's better to opt in and move back to the team. If you want to go that direction. Yeah. I mean, we can go to the basic there. I, mean, I think we talked about it. Like you, I think we have, details perfectly. Now. Yeah, we have details now, like in terms of, Initially, there was a possibility of a, a very high escrow for this season, up to 30%, given the, the heavy losses. Um, and we both wondered aloud, like, well, what happens if they, you know, kind of spread that out um, over a couple of years? And that's what they're doing, it seems like. They're, the range is, is it, it's 10 to 20% um, for the next three seasons. Is that right? Yeah, I don't exactly understand how they're doing because the reporting on it's a little bit unclear in, in the wording, where it's 10% this year, but it can go up to 20% if the losses this year, like – but they wouldn't be able to like go to the players and claw that back. So I assume they mean it would increase the following year to make up for losses this year. But it's, it's unclear to me exactly what, what they're really saying in there. But the idea that they might have 30 something, you know, 30% escrow and basically take all the loss this year, which would have been patently unfair. Like, right. you know, and that's something I had talked about, even in my, like the little bit of writing I did where it's like, it seemed like a lot of, uh, 
the people who like to talk about this in the media had kind of internalized this idea that that's how it was going to work. And I was always like, I don't know if that's really going to be how it works because it just seems unfair and like seems like something that the NBPA wouldn't be wild about. They might mess with the escrow, which is what they've done. But like that idea, I was always a little bit suspicious that that's how it would end. And now we know that it looks very much more that they'll, they will be spreading the hit out over multiple years. And so there's no reason for Hayward to look at it and be like, boy, I don't want to take my big pay this year. It may actually be that the escrow is more next season and that he's better getting more money this year. Like it's hard to, hard to understand exactly what the math is from like a couple of tweets from people who aren't getting into like the super details on this stuff, but it does at least look like there's not like a financial incentive for him to want to opt out. Now that, that cuts both ways, right? It wouldn't give him a financial incentive to want to opt out and resign with the Celtics for a longer term either. Right. Um, but it also means that if he wants to go somewhere else, like nobody's going to give him the max in free no. agency this year. No. So if no one's going to give him like over $30 million this year. No, 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 no. I mean, I think, uh, uh, John Hollinger's like sort of weird formula that he was doing to estimate you know, worth for players was like 17 million and Bobby Marks estimated at like 20 to 22 million. And that's starting salary. He's going to be getting older as he goes through it. The, so what his worth is and what a team was, will be willing to pay him are, are not the same thing in this case, unless you believe in economic theory of market worth. But um, like there, there are certainly financial considerations that we thought might be a, a bigger deal for wanting to opt out and resign here or sign somewhere else that, that have kind of gone away. And so I think that increases just simply increases the likelihood that he'll opt in and take the, take the big payday. NFL football continues on this week, which has a few surprise teams at the top of the standings. And you might not be able to be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at bet online, no matter how the schedules change or players that play bet online is going that extra mile to make sure you can get in on every game this season with the fastest updated odds in the industry. There are always more options to wager than anywhere else online. So head on over to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great midseason bonuses, offers, and contests. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. And now back to the show. So I'm just fascinated by the situation with that situation and obviously him opting in, having to opt in before the draft if he's going to do it. Yeah. And like from the Celtics perspective, okay, this is, you know, the road that you expect it to be at, at this point anyway. Um, you also have a training camp just like two weeks away. So continuity is very much a plus, uh, which they could have plenty of this off season if they wanted to. Um, at the same time, you know, after hearing all this um, quote unquote buzz the last couple of weeks, or you know that uh, at the least his agent was definitely checking around to see what he, what's out there, which is, totally understandable but if he's not interested at all in an extension um then you still kind of have to think hard about trading him right now anyway because this is if you're going to do it this is the best time to do it yeah and and again in there i have some questions about the exact way that some of these things are going to work they the answers might not even they might not even have come to answers on some of these things yet but like if he has to opt in before the draft could you trade him at the draft under his current salary for players who are eligible to be traded on draft night because something that again we talked about on another uh, earlier pod where his trade kicker if he opts in becomes potentially an issue in the next season where it would give him some leverage in terms of maybe determining what trades are valid and what team he would end up on uh, usually you can overcome those things in some with some creative trade structures but like 
it's not a nothing. It it does make trades more difficult, and it does mean that there's an additional cash out outlay in a season where there's not going to be a ton of cash floating around necessarily. I don't think that they'll be able to do it. I think they will have to, unless they forget. And sometimes that's literally what happens. They're trying to do so many things that like they forget about it. <laughs> um, but I don't think they'll be able to trade him literally on draft night under his $32 million contract, even though technically if he's opted in, if he's a formally opted in, then he's no longer ineligible to be traded because he's not a right. pending free agent anymore. Like, so I have questions about exactly how that's going to work, but you know, I've been on, on this case for a while that it's like, I don't know if he's going to be here long-term. I don't know if the Celtics want him to be long-term. Now it really seems like he doesn't have much interest in being here long-term and like, we don't need to rehash every single thing again, but yeah, like to me, it's, it's right. pretty straightforward that they should be trying to trade him. Now, maybe nobody wants to trade him. Maybe the whole league views him as a negative salary contract, even for just one more year. And you can't, and like, you don't, you're not going to give him away for nothing or for a bad deal because he's still a good player and you are still a team with title aspirations. But like, you know, there's been nothing in the last couple of weeks of rumors that makes you feel like you you know, want to commit to him and expect that if he goes to free agency, you'll be able to re-sign him for some sweetheart deal and have him in, you know, cause he loves Brad Stevens so much. Like that just doesn't seem to be on the cards here. And so you have to operate that way and, and look to move him. I think if he opts in and he might just opt out, right. If he really doesn't want to be here, he'll just opt out and then figure it out from there. But. Right. But yeah, that's these developments should help the Celtics in that front in terms of avoiding a situation where he just walks away for nothing. Um, it would be a little crazy else. to me. Like, I know if he wants to leave, if his, unless they have some, they, and it may be that they have a prearranged agreement. Yeah, a pre-arranged science trade could that. like come into play. Yeah, or obviously. yeah, absolutely. There's all sorts of things that we don't know what they're talking about. And if, if they just desperately want to get back to Indiana and they've let the entire league know that they're going to sign in Indiana somehow next year. And it's like, okay, well, we'll do a three team signing trade where we get Miles Turner and whatever. Like it's possible that's been worked out already. But if you go in assuming that everybody's playing by the rules and nobody's talking to anybody and like, that's of course stupid, it would be very odd for him to opt out of this amount of money with this condensed schedule, with this many unknowns and have to go to a new team that again, as you said, is going to have a very short training camp. He has injury questions, you know, a new training staff, uh, uh, all this truncated schedule stuff, and then being thrown right into the deep end with a new team. That seems like awful lot of risk to be taking on when you've got $34 million in, in, you know, in your pocket already. So, but we'll see. The, the thing is we'll know really soon, right? <laughs> like this time next week, we'll probably know. Right. It's kind of nuts that it's going to be that it's quick here. Real nuts. Um, other important items. Um, number one for the Southern sister, I think the luxury tax yeah. uh, reduction, which is, it's not worth going too much into, but essentially there's going to be an adjustment to how much tax teams can have to pay based on how much, you know, the, the revenue for the season fall, you know, is shorter compared to the original projections. So if it's 40% short, then you're going to get a 40% discount on your luxury tax bill for the season, which matters for the Celtics to a decent degree. Cause they're going to, if Hayward opts in, they're definitely going to be a cap team or a tax team, I should say. But um, so it's like them, the Nets, the Warriors, the Sixers, those are the big ones that um, know they're going to be well into the – we're already going to be well into the tax, and so we'll be able to at least um, not have to worry about giant, gigantic tax bills. Yeah, you knew there was going to have to be something that they did to to mitigate if they kept the tax line at the current one, just because 
it just messes up the math for like enough teams where it doesn't make any sense to, to not do anything. And so, yeah, exactly what you said. If So if you have a, a $20 million tax bill and revenue comes in 30% below projections, you get $6 million back or they don't collect $6 million. I don't really know. There's a lot of right. flexibility in how the league can collect and, and distribute tax payments. So I don't know the exact mechanism they're going to do it, but basically you get $6 million back. Um, it's, it's interesting because it's not something that you know, right? It's, you don't know exactly how the season's going to go. But on the other side, there is, there is something that one of my like high school teachers asked me, you know, they said like, who wants to pay the tax? Who wants to pay taxes? Like nobody in the class raised their hand. He was like, I want to pay taxes because it means I'm making more money. So to a certain extent, like if you end up having to pay your full tax bill, it's because you made a lot more money and like, you'd rather get the 60% that you would have lost, right? Like, so I don't think there's going to be any teams that, that are saying like, okay, we aren't going to spend this because we're afraid that we'll make too much money to not get our tax cut, right? Like that doesn't, right. doesn't functionally make any sense. So I think most teams will look at it and say, okay, well, we're projecting a 30% drop. So our tax bill will come in 30% below. Now, I think the thing that's important here for the Celtics more than the dollars and cents of like how much Wick Grousebeck is going to have to write a check for is that they did, because they did it this way, there is no real obvious path to avoiding the tax entirely and putting off repeater status. Yes. And we were sort of hoping that if they set the tax line at 139, $140 million, something like that, that with other moves, if Hayward opts out and you do blah, 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 whatever, you trade him, you get under the tax line entirely, you can put that off. We've seen with the Boston Red Sox that when teams get scared of repeater taxes and things like that, they can do some really crazy things with trading Mookie bets. Um, I don't think the Celtics would move Jason Tatum because of repeater taxes, but like the repeater tax down the line could be something that's, that's an issue in uh, they are not going to be able to avoid it this year, um, even if they do get some number of millions of dollars cut off their tax bill at the end. And so, right, like that's not great at, from a Celtics perspective, I don't think. It's just money. I don't really care about <laughs> their cash position. I care about like their team building position. <laughs> I mean, could, if you sign and trade Hayward, maybe you can get out of it if you take it's, back. It gets tight. But it's still, it's yeah. still like that 132 number makes it real tight. It's really tight. And like I've got, worked through a bunch of stuff. And, you gotta like you got you still got some dead money on the cap of Gershon, like just random. And then you're gonna probably, I mean, you hopefully, um, can dump Vincent, um, and not you know just clear him from the books entirely, um, before the next league year starts. But yeah, it's it's you if you're trying to maximize your chances, it's gonna be tough to pull that off and stay under 132 million, um, yeah. for the payroll. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to fill a roster and make a valid Hayward trade out that gets you back some actual talent. Like, I think it's, if it was 139, you could certainly envision ways, particularly with, like, in-season trades for Hayward, something like that, even if they started the season with him, where there might, a goal of it might be to get under the tax line. But I think at, at the number that it is, it's pretty much, and, you know, we, everybody should just be assuming that they will be a tax team this year in some manner. And that impacts other things that, again, we've talked about. Like, they will not have the... The, the full you know mid-level they'll have the taxpayer mid-level which gives them a little less spending power and and all those things that come with it um and that's that's all important but also i think things that we've expected over the last couple of weeks as sort of news trickled out of how they were um looking to structure all this and then i mean i guess the last thing is just um salary cap guaranteed to go up by three percent each year for the next three years three, two, Three to ten, so right. minimum three percent, maximum ten percent. It can increase. Uh, you would expect that it would be on the low end next year. Right. One of the things I think is interesting is like if the league, if the news about COVID vaccine status had come out uh, six weeks before 
would the league still have been pushing to move the entire season up? Or like, would they have thought, well, maybe we can get some fans into the arena. Like maybe we're having progress here. I don't really, the timelines of how that's realistically going to get produced and distributed, I I don't think would make a difference for the league, but it would be interesting to sort of think about how that, that would have gone. But I don't expect that there's going to be fans, any number, you know, significant number of fans, Revenues are going to be way down next year, which means that the, the salary cap, I think you safely could assume will be going up 3% next year. Right. Now that is actually important because if it goes up 3% next year and then things go back to normal and it goes up say 8% or 10% the year after that, then you will lock in Jason Tatum on hopefully a five-year max extension when that is at sort of a still a low point for the cap uh, before possibly it returns to normal for years two through five of his extension. So that that could be... Uh, could be a boon, although with the limitations, like he's going to be getting 8% raises, even if the cap goes up 10%, it's barely outpacing what his raises are going to be. Maybe there will be some balloon year down the line where like everything has to catch up all at once and there's a big cap spike again and it looks like a good deal at the end or something like that. But um, I think you can be pretty confident as to the numbers that he's going to be signing for next year. And the only thing I have a question in there that I don't know if you have any thoughts on is like, because you're expecting this low starting cap this small maybe a three percent cap increase next year is do does his agent and does Tatum push back harder on giving back anything on on the 30 percent for the Rose stuff like if they come in and say like hey we want you know 27 percent if you make third team and 28 percent if you make second team and 30 percent if you make first team are they just like no you're already getting a low number here like we we want the full full boat 30 percent no matter what all NBA team he makes. And like, you just sort of say, all right, well, that's fine. We'll just go do that. Cause you don't want to piss him off. <laughs> yeah. I'd probably just give it to him. I mean, maybe make it okay. First or second team, 30% and then third team 28 or something like that. Um, and you'd give I, him all 30% if it gets you no, yeah, if it gets you, right yeah, if it gets you, right. right if like it gets you the fifth, right. if, if he's quibbling about yeah. that, but hopefully, I mean, if you're negotiating with him, if you're, if you're Danny Ainge, you hope that it doesn't, you know, come in this line. I mean, I guess this is, if anything, this is still um, a situation where you're happy that the numbers came in this low where there's really like the, such a wide range of where the, the cap could be, you know, for so long. Um, it's going to be tough for him to, to just like, he's not going to, he's probably going to do just as well financially by doing the five years as he would by opting out. Like maybe he could do slightly better, but when it's, this is your first contract, like no one, when you get offered the full boat or the potential to earn a full boat, like no one turns that down. And no, but really the question is, yeah. Can you get, is it would absolutely to me be worth it. Just say, yeah. Okay. You get 30%, even if you make 13 and if you don't give a player option, the ideal, I think from that you would sort of look at in, in previous ones would be to say maybe, um, you know, 28%, 29%, 30% for third, second and first team, all NBA, and no player option. And that's sort of where you meet in the, you know, that's sort of the meeting point that you're shooting for and in your negotiations. But like, I I don't know if he gets 30% and it's a 3% increase next year, then that's $195.6 million contract over five years. Like he's not going to turn it down. Um, And really, I think what you're fighting over there is, is yeah, that, that fifth year player option. And like I said, I just think that with a locked in low increase next year um, that maybe they just, don't even really have don't end up haggling too much over the what the escalators look like. Right. What's uh what's two million dollars here or there when it's you're dealing with two hundred million dollars um, <laughs> for your franchise player. Um yeah, so I think that's just about it out of and there's gonna be more stuff that comes around we'll, you know, beginning like Monday of next week looks like 
the day that maybe trades become possible again. Um, and from the sounds of it, it's and from just talking to people around the league, it sounds like it's going to be a very busy week since a lot of these teams have new management and have been waiting around for a very long time um, and have some different ambitions in terms of how they want to structure their teams for next year. Um, so it should be fun. It should be a hell of a week, Ryan. And um, they, it's really annoying that they're opening free agency signings at 1201 AM again. I can't believe it. No, they aren't though. <laughs> they are the 20, what the 20th is the open, but the moratorium lifts the 22nd at 1201 AM, isn't it? That was, I was 12 1 p.m. I wanted to say oh, it was p.m. Oh, I, maybe I misread it. Oh, that would be so nice. But I, I can't, I don't know that for sure. The Let deal me... calls for free agency to begin 6 p.m. Eastern on November 20th. Uh, and now I don't know. I saw it in the tweet this morning. I, maybe I just read it wrong and just assumed like, ah, oh, 12 1. If it's noon, oh, that would be nice. I want to say it was noon and I got excited oh, about that. That would be so good. Maybe you read it more closely than I did. <laughs> I, I'd have to go back. <laughs> yeah, here it is. Players can sign contracts with teams beginning at 12 1 p.m. Sunday. Oh, thank God. So no burning the midnight oil. They're gonna go to go head to head with the uh, with the NFL, and the one thing that the NBA can compete with the NFL on is transactions. Everybody loves transactions. Exactly. Well, I mean, all the I mean, it's gonna be Friday. I feel like everything. It's gonna be free for all Friday. That whole weekend. It's gonna be crazy time. Yeah, it's it's gonna come fast and furious um, because there's a very finite amount of cap room out there. Um, well, there's a finite number of days. <laughs> that's yeah, really that's true. Yeah, like, you want to get the first. It's less than two weeks, and every team has to have to be ready for training camp, and like it's it's just gonna be wild. And we'll be on top of it all here at the Winning Plays Podcast. Um, Ryan, you want to tell what the listeners they can do before we uh, wrap up here? Uh, they can subscribe, rate, and review. I think that's all the things they can do. Right, do it on Apple Podcasts. Apparently, that matters more than if you do it in other places. But anywhere you listen is fine. But Subscribe, rate, and review to the Winning Place podcast, and we would greatly appreciate it. You're pro. Um, we will be back later this week, and we'll be back a bunch for sure next week when all the wheels start moving on this. But um, as always, hit us up um, at Winning Place Pod on Twitter. You can find Ryan at Danger Cart. I'm at Brian T. Rob, and we will chat with you guys later this week.